Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of All My Movies. And if you are watching on YouTube on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, I would like to thank you particularly for being here as I am in front of this big blank void in a temporary space while we're doing some major renovations on the studio. Uh, it's why this is very empty and hollow looking, and it's also why it slightly looks like I've been kidnapped. So, we're going to keep the studio segment short and sweet this week because I have a fantastic guest, Mr. Mark Andrako, a wonderful writer and a great friend. He will be talking with me about the two movies that we're covering this week, 1980's Friday the 13th and 1981's Friday the 13th Part 2, which kicked off a slasher franchise that has been on pause for a little bit, but much like Jason Voorhees, you know will pop out of the grave sometime very soon. As a matter of fact, Friday the 13th is 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 a buzz right now. There was a new collection that was just released this past week. It's obviously right around Halloween, so there are always big, buzzy Friday the 13th things going on, people watching the old films. So it seemed like a good time to cover these movies, and Mark is such a great guest, has such a great knowledge base for these movies, and is such a passionate fan of these movies, and that's so much of what this show is about. So we're going to get to Mark in just a second, but if you don't know a lot about these films, let's do a quick primer. However, I do want to say I'm not going to go super in-depth into the Friday the 13th franchise because there is an absolutely fantastic documentary called Crystal Lake Memories that's over six hours long covering an exhaustive list of everything you would ever want to know about this franchise. It's directed by Daniel Ferens. It came out a few years ago. If you can find that documentary, go seek it out. Learn about these movies. It's a really, really great documentary. There's another one called Never Sleep Again, which is about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise that is equally comprehensive, and I really, really recommend both of those. So I'm not going to try to cover a lot of that same ground. If you want to know more about Friday the 13th, go check out that documentary. But a brief summary for both films, Friday the 13th, as I mentioned, was released in 1980, and it was directed and produced by Sean S. Cunningham. Now, he had worked with Wes Craven already on a movie called Last House on the Left, and he wanted to make a big splash following the commercial success of John Carpenter's Halloween. Cunningham teamed up with Victor Miller and commissioned a screenplay for the film and actually began promoting Friday the 13th before the script was even finished, taking out a full-page ad in Variety to get studios interested in picking up his independent film. The cast of the movie was made up of relative unknowns, save for Kevin Bacon, who'd had a supporting role a couple of years earlier in Animal House, but still was not the star that he would come to be later on in the 80s and continuing on today, after all, there's six degrees of separation between him and everybody else. The only person of note really in the cast with an established career was Betsy Palmer, who played the key role of Mrs. Voorhees. She was an actress who's mostly known for television roles. As a matter of fact, she hadn't done a feature film since 1959. And she took the part for a very practical reason. So the phone rang and my agent said, how would you like to do a movie? I said, great, that'll pay for the car that I want to buy. Filming took place in 1979 at a New Jersey Boy Scout camp with Cunningham in the director's chair and with the key assistance of Tom Savini, who is now a legendary makeup and gore effects guru. At that time, he was hired to work on the film based on the strength of his work on George A. Romero's landmark zombie film Dawn of the Dead back in 1978. Filming was completed in a matter of weeks, and the film moved on to post-production, and that's where the Friday the 13th series found perhaps its most enduring and iconic symbol. And I'm not talking about Jason Voorhees' hockey mask. We wouldn't see an adult Jason Voorhees until the next movie. We wouldn't see the hockey mask until part three. No, the biggest symbol for Friday the 13th wasn't even something that you see on screen. It's something that you hear, courtesy of composer Henry Manfredini. I got the wacky idea to take kill her mommy uh the first letter of first two letters of kill k-i and ma m-a and then there was a, a a gizmo we had called an echoplex which we were using a lot in the film i went to the microphone and i don't know why but i, I just went and it went then i went Once the film was completed, Paramount Pictures 
bought the domestic distribution rights to the movie with Warner Brothers picking up international distribution rights. And this was one of the first times, if not the first time, that a major Hollywood studio committed to a nationwide release for an independent horror film like Friday the 13th. Of course, there had been independent horror films that had been released before, but this was a studio putting the full might of an advertising and nationwide release budget behind a smaller film. Friday the 13th. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday the 13th opened in theaters nationwide on May 9th, 1980, and was the number one movie at the box office in its opening weekend, over the number two film, the Get Smart feature film, The Nude Bomb. And the movie went on to make almost $40 million domestically. Don't forget, it was made for a budget just over half a million. It did another $20 million internationally. But while the fans loved the movie, Mrs. Voorhees wasn't the only person with knives out because Friday the 13th soon found itself the target of film critics, including the ones that we reference all the time here on the show, Siskel and Ebert, who took aim at the film for what they perceived to be misogynistic overtones. And I worry then about this idea, which is that when you view women constantly as sport, being stabbed, I think that's a sort of a sick notion that just sort of makes it, it's degrading. You view them as second class, that somehow this is acceptable behavior. You've said before that all movies tend to argue in favor of the behavior that they show. Mm -hmm. These are women as sport to be stabbed. As a matter of fact, Gene Siskel took this criticism one step further, or you could say several steps further, not only spoiling the movie in his written review of the film, but providing his readers with the hometown of actress Betsy Palmer and encouraging them to send her letters expressing their displeasure with the movie. And you know what? I love Siskel and Ebert, but I will say, not cool, Siskel. Not cool at all. Despite the critical thrashing, the phenomenal box office success of Friday the 13th guaranteed that a sequel would go into production almost immediately. And initially, Paramount toyed with the idea of doing an anthology series, much like Halloween would try and fail to do several years later. However, the idea for a sequel actually was much easier than reinventing the franchise because, reportedly, effects guru Tom Savini was the one who came up with the idea of Jason's appearance at the end of the first film to give Friday the 13th an ending much like Carrie and its grabbing ending that left audiences screaming as they came out of the theater. And while his initial appearance was in a dream sequence, Jason Voorhees was about to become very real. On a June night in 1980, Friday the 13th, 12 of her friends were murdered. Why should Friday the 13th, 1981, be any different? Friday the 13th. Part two. Filming on Friday the 13th Part 2 began in October of 1980, less than six months after the release of the first film. However, this time around, several key members of the crew did not return, including director Sean S. Cunningham and Tom Savini, both of whom, amongst other reasons, openly balked at the concept of bringing Jason Voorhees into the franchise as the killer. Both of them had imagined that Jason himself was long dead and gone, and that Mrs. Voorhees was the original psychopath intended for the franchise. Steve Miner, a producer on the first film, took over the director's chair, and the cast was again composed mostly of unknowns who could be dispatched quickly and easily. Friday the 13th Part 2 opened on May 1st, 1981, almost one year exactly after the first movie. And like its predecessor, it was the number one film at the box office. Now, it only made about half as much, but the budget was still pretty low. It was about double the first movie, but still just over a million dollars. And in the low-risk, high-reward world of making slasher films, that meant that the franchise was going to keep going. And this was much to the chagrin of critics like Siskel and Ebert, who saw somehow hated the sequel to Friday the 13th 
even more than the original movie. Friday the 13th Part 2 is a disheartening and depressing movie because it contains an absolutely negative view of human nature. It's just a series of teenagers who come on screen, mm -hmm. say a few words, and then they're hacked to pieces. Mm -hmm. Among the movie's low points is a kid in a wheelchair who has his head hacked open by a machete, and a young couple who are both impaled by the same spear. This isn't a movie, it's a cinematic geek show. It seems to be made by and for people with no cheerfulness, no hope, no trust in human nature. Critics have never liked horror films, but the absolute venom that a lot of critics had for this franchise was part of why I was so excited to talk to my guest this week. He not only saw these movies when they came out in theaters, he has written backstories for some of their characters, along with so many other great comics, you name it. He is a great friend of mine and a person who I am definitely bringing back to talk about this franchise again in the future, Mark Andreco. So without further ado, let's get out of this blank void and go to my interview with Mark. I am joined by my friend, Mark Andreco. We have been friends uh, across so many different places on the internet, screen mm -hmm. junkies, the movie trivia schmodown, just in life, in life, just in general. Uh, Mark, how's it going, man? Good. Good to see you, my friend. It's been too long. It's been a while. I, you know, this, this, this is keeping everyone apart, and that's been the fun thing about doing the show is mm -hmm. I had Mark Riley on the show last week. I've got you on. It's also a great way to hang out with my friends, which is nice. right now is a great thing to have. Yeah, absolutely. Any contact is good contact. And it's weird that this cyber contact has made me want to be around people more because I always thought I was a misanthrope. <laughs> and I'm like, God, do I actually like people? Damn it. <laughs> I know, so. right? It's challenged a lot of our, uh, for me, I was, I was, I, it, it's challenged my concept of being an introvert a lot because uh, it's yeah. like, I just want to be around people. Um, but Mark, we were actually talking and it was, it was really good timing because we're doing this run of Halloween and scary mm -hmm. movies, et cetera. And we were just chatting and, and you were talking about uh, particularly the first two Friday the 13th films mm -hmm. and how much you love them and how, uh, you know, sharing some of your memories with them. And, th and that's so much of the show is talking about not just the movies themselves, but the memories that we have surrounding them and, and how they impacted our lives. So we'll start with the first Friday the 13th. Yeah. Uh, do you have any memories of seeing that movie the first time? And do you remember what you thought of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was I was a big horror movie fan, even as a little kid. The first thing I ever remember seeing on television when I was like, probably two and a half. I have images of uh, Max Shrek in the original Nosferatu. It was, it was just playing on like a Saturday night movie thing. Back back when I was a baby, there were like three channels. So you just put on whatever was on. And I remember always liked, I always liked getting scared. I was terrified up until the moment. And then when it happened, I'm like, let's do it again. So I was a, I was a reader of, um, I don't know if you remember, uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. Uh, it was by okay. this guy, uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, who, used to, who was a big horror guy. And I was, I had strep throat and I was at the doctor's office. And afterwards, after I got the shot, my mom took me to the, the newsstand and said, you can get a book. And I saw this cover of Famous Monsters of Film. And it was a picture of Jason when he comes up out of the water at the end. I'm like, oh, I need this. And basically, it wasn't even an article. It was just basically a summary of the story. So I begged my mom. And it had pictures of some of the gore, too, like the axe in the face and stuff. I was like, oh, this is heaven. I'm glad and you I, mentioned that because yeah. you know I remember growing up before I ever saw Friday the 13th and I don't know where it was it was in mm -hmm. one of those kinds of magazines or something was I remember a picture of Kevin Bacon with a with the arrow through his throat and I mean yeah. they used to just print those pictures in oh, yeah. anywhere it, it's crazy yeah. how on the backs of the video boxes it's crazy how much yeah. uh, in a in a way going backwards how much less restrictive they were about showing that kind of stuff outside. Now it seems like it's much more restrictive. In some ways, yes, but I would I would argue that any episode of The Walking Dead is probably gorier than Friday the Thirteenth. Mm -hmm. So it's this weird. It's this weird. It's like nudity in in society. What you know, you can see naked tribal people in the Polyne in Polynesian countries because they're not. It's, it's tribal nudity. It's not sensual nudity. Or you can, you know, or you can say you can say the F word once and you get a PG-13, but F word plus one nipple is an R. It's just all this weird, arcane nonsense. But, uh, but yeah, so anyway, I read the magazine. I begged my mom to take me to see the movie, and she said it's rated R. I said, and I got, she said if I got straight A's, she would take me to see it. So I got straight A's, 
And the Saturday it opened, my mom took me to a matinee and me and my mom were there watching it. And I knew Jason was going to pop up at the end because they spoiled it weirdly in this article. So I was watching everyone else watch it. And I think that, that, that once again, answering the question you mentioned earlier, how did this shape you? Not only did it shape my enjoyment of film and just seeing visceral stuff, but it also shaped my enjoyment as a watcher of how film affects other people. And that's interesting because, you know, we've heard Spielberg used to go around and, and, and watch the, the moment where the head pops out of the boat in Jaws mm-hmm. and watch the audience doing that. And, and I was reading in my research about this film that Tom Savini, who did the effects that, the, you know, the, which the are amazing stuff, effects, which are yeah. amazing. And other people involved with the film also would go to theaters and go and watch the last five minutes because they loved seeing that audience reaction. And we now see movies that are sold on paranormal activity comes to mind not on the movie necessarily but on watching the audience watch the movie um what do you think it is about that you know particularly if you know what's happening and you're sitting next to somebody that doesn't know what what's happening what do you think the appeal of that is watching someone watch what's happening because i think i think a brief aside i think a really great twist can make a bad movie seem better than it is a, a, a true, a truly good twist is something where it makes some of the audience gets it, whether it's a murder mystery novel or a film. If it's too out there, your audience feels betrayed. There's no way they could have figured that out. And for me, I think, and it's affected me as a, as a writer as well. I like knowing the endings of things because then I can appreciate if the journey makes sense and not be distracted by, oh wait a minute, where did that come from? And I think, I think watching people react to things gives you. It's, you know, there's that scene in, in um, the original Halloween. Dr. Loomis is outside the house, and the kids are like, I'm not going up there. I'm not going up there. He's like, Lonnie, I'm coming to get you. And he, the kids, ah, and run off. And then the sheriff taps him on the shoulder and goes, ah. And you're like, yes, of course, of course. We, we like being in on that. And it's a safe scare. You know, you, I can argue, and I think we'll touch on this probably later, about the, the graphic violence in these movies. But just to get out there at the beginning, the graphic violence in these movies is like the violence in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's Grand Guignol violence. It's so over the top and so just big and huge and ridiculous that it's different than, say, a movie like Hostel or Audition, where it's about making you feel what this would feel. I doubt I'm ever going to be shot by 35 arrows or, you know, or <laughs> get an axe in my head. And that's the kind of stuff that is, that is goofy and fun about it. It, it. it feels like a campfire story. It's, it's, it's in some ways, not to overstate its artistry at all, because it is just a disposable, fun movie, but it really is a really good cheeseburger. Yeah, and it's a cheeseburger that's endured, and, and that's something that we talk about on the show all the time, or that you know that we're going to get into also, certainly as we go forward, is the idea that you know, last week I talked about with Mark Riley about Jaws mm-hmm. the Revenge, which is undeniably one of the worst movies ever made, in my mind. Mm-hmm. And yet we both derive so much pleasure out of it uh, for different reasons. And that's why I like that we're covering a lot of different sorts of, of movies on the show is that people go to movies for different reasons and mm-hmm. they get enjoyment out of them for different reasons. And Friday the 13th movies, you don't go see because they are masterpieces of cinema. They, no. are, they are a different kind of entertainment. They fall into a different bucket. And generally they know what they are. They're not trying to be profound trying to be profound they're haunted house movies where the haunted house chops you into pieces you know right so well you talk about how a great twist can make uh, an average movie seem better of course friday the 13th has one of the the more famous horror movie twists of mm-hmm. all time which is that and even going back and watching it the thing that i had kind of forgotten is they don't necessarily set up that the killer is jason in this movie it's there's a lot right. of red herrings you think it might be the the guy running the camp you might think it might be the crazy guy from town there's never really this idea that jason is the and jason's not even necessarily that big of an element until mrs Voorhees comes in in the last 15 minutes of the movie um but do you remember when you get to the end and you find out that it's like oh it's the old the jason's mother is the killer um does that does that enhance the enjoyment do people kind of seem disappointed by that well, for me, it really enhanced the enjoyment, and and I think I think it's interesting you brought up the the jump scare at the end because this movie feels like that 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 jump scare is obviously directly influenced by De Palma's Carrie. Yes, I actually think the Friday the Thirteenth one is scarier. 
because you don't know if Alice is hallucinating or not. Mm -hmm. um, and the Mrs. Voorhees, I bet you Glenn Close watched Friday the 13th. Because <laughs> there's a slight, just a slight taste of Mrs. Voorhees when she's like, she's this lovely person. She's like, but you left him alone. You, and suddenly you're like, wait a minute, did I? Did I leave her kid alone? And it takes you a minute to realize that she's batshit crazy. Right. And it's actually, you know, and Betsy Palmer was an actress of note when she got that role. I mean, it's so funny. I remember a couple of years ago, I was up one night watching Game Show Network at three in the morning and they had What's My Line from the 50s. <laughs> and she was a contestant on it. She was a celebrity contestant and was a beautiful young woman. So she, you know, and the legend of her is she took the movie only because her Cadillac broke down. Right. <laughs> and and it would, they would pay her enough to buy a new Cadillac. But when she showed up for a certain level, a certain age of audience members, when she shows up, people are like, oh, she can't be the killer. That's Betsy Palmer. She was in our, our living room for 35 years every night. And her performance, you know, for a woman who said when she got there, she's like, this movie's shit, but it paid for my car. She she's a trooper. She gives it's it's a it's a crazy performance, but there are choices being made there. And you're like, oh, it's why I think she she that character is so um, evergreen because you get it. You get it. If your kid drowned because a couple of horny teenagers and no one cared. You'd be pretty upset. Uh, okay. Too. Give me my cable net sweater and my hunting knife. Where do I go? <laughs> right. You know, I, one thing I was, when I was looking at her performance, I think, and, and it's this idea of knowing what kind of movie you're in and whether she did or she didn't, yeah. I don't know. But that moment where she kind of looks off into space and says, you know, killer mommy, killer that was the perfect i mean she towed that line perfectly between camp and mm -hmm. actual insanity like you could if you go too far one way or the other that becomes a laughable moment but you you buy that in the moment because of what she brings to that character and it it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of alec guinness with star wars where he was making that movie and George Lucas largely hired him to get some prestige. And, and, you know, from the reports uh, on set, he thought it's the most ridiculous thing he'd ever done in his life. This is going to end my Yeah, career. He got an Oscar nomination from it. He's the only right. actor to ever get an Oscar nomination in a star Wars movie. I totally agree. I think, I think that sometimes, especially actors of their generation, they did a lot of schlock movies. That was part of the job. They, they lived during the studio system where you didn't have a, you didn't get to pick what movies you got in. You got to do a big budget blockbuster above the title and then you were third soldier from the left in the next movie and if the studio was pissed at you you did nothing so they didn't really judge that they were too good for material but they both because they both knew they were in schlock i think it freed them it freed them up in a way that they actually gave a more naturalistic performance a more believable a more believable performance in the context of those worlds than they would have if they were like i'm going to play if they were vincent price do you think that there's because when you talk when you read interviews with you know Sean Cunningham and with the people you know the writers make people making the movie they openly admit they're like yeah we saw Halloween and we wanted to rip that off yeah I, I guess there's something a little freeing by by not pretending that they're doing something different but by saying like yeah Halloween made a bunch of money and we thought why don't we just do that uh, yeah you and, know what you, you know what recently did that Fifty Shades that? of Grey Fifty Shades of Grey was Twilight fan fiction and they're like oh. Let's change the names. Yeah. That, that this recycling, this this communal campfire versions of stories is what we've been doing since we were in the caves. So, you know, and all the best artists, the most successful artists will say steal from the best people. And if you're going to rip off a horror movie, the original Halloween is arguably one of the best, scariest, most artful films ever made. I agree. And, you know, we were talking about theater reaction. I, I, there was a, I don't know if you saw it. I think it was last year, the year before it kind of surfaced, bubbled up on the internet. But uh, I think around the time the Blumhouse version was coming out, the they found some audio recordings of an audience, a 1978 mm -hmm. audience watching the last five minutes of the movie. And I think that's I think that's on the box set too. The, is the audio it? Okay. Track. Yeah, it may yeah. very well be, but that I mean, it it does speak to the idea of and when we when I speak about movie theaters and the communal experience, it is that it is that just that primal thing of its laughter, its mm -hmm. terror, its suspense. Uh, you know, it, it's knowing that what you're seeing is ridiculous, but being scared at the same time. And not a yeah. lot of movies can pull it off. Uh, but I would say that Halloween pulled it off, and th and this movie definitely pulled it. Well, and something something to talk about the, the the effectiveness of the way they they tell the stories both in Halloween and in uh, Friday the Thirteenth, especially the very end of Friday the Thirteenth, before Jason jumps off out of the water, 
the music is quiet and it's so it's so still and every time i see it i'm like did i am jason's not going to jump up i just imagined that right i just i just edited this movie because it because they take their time yes just when you think okay this is going to be over there's another three bars of the song and then the camera pulls back and you're like wait a minute Oh, did I imagine this? And it's the same thing with Halloween. Every time I reach, I watch Halloween, I'm like, she's going to get away this time. And I've yep. seen that movie literally hundreds of times. I bet about six months of my life thus far has been just watching Halloween, if you condensed it all. <laughs> I know. So I, I, so I know what's going to happen. I just saw it the other night with commercials. And I was like, oh, my God, we're, she's going to get in the house. I'm like, no, she's not. You've seen this before. But yeah. that's what's so great about it. And it's but it's safe scaring. It's why kids like being scared. Because you know that even though you're scared, you're in control. And it, it, it tests your limits in a way that is just I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because we've evolved and we're not we're not actually being chased by T Rexes and Velociraptors and Sabertooth Tigers. That we like to do that to keep that part of our brain alive just in case. But yeah. I, I I've never understood. I'm I'm really sad for people that don't enjoy being scared. Well, Friday the Thirteenth was a huge hit, which meant mm-hmm. that obviously a sequel was hot on the heels. Now the premise yeah. was was I mean Tom Savini didn't return, Sean Cunningham didn't return. A lot of the key production team for the first movie said mm-hmm. that the premise of Jason actually coming back in the second movie was ridiculous. Uh, I hope but- they returned all their residual checks from the franchise. <laughs> exactly, uh, but but you know. Uh, <laughs> Really, the first movie, as 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 big of a hit as it was, really from a storytelling point, is kind of the prelude to the story that we begin yeah. in the second movie, where we find that Jason is is not a child at the bottom of the lake; he is somehow alive. And uh, but this is still kind of a, a proto Jason, no hockey yeah. mask. Yeah, I um, love the I love the baghead overall Jason because that that's that gets into the whole deliverance wrong turn scary hill people thing that i have a couple of in my family tree you know that's really terrifying and anytime something some monster with one eye can move that fast you're like thank god it's only got one because if you had both i would definitely be dead i'm not that agile with two and and once again i think like the like we talked about this at dinner the other night i think the, the second one and the first one actually are like one movie in a lot mm-hmm. of ways because the aesthetic is very similar and unlike the other ones, like when they did the 3D ones and then just started leaning into the goofiness of the franchise, they're both both these movies are scary. Both these movies have some, you know, put some of the 80s performances and stuff aside. But the idea of being out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, and be, especially the age group that goes to, you know, when you're 18 years old, you don't know your ass from your elbow. So to, to deal with the own uncertainty of who you are in this context and the heightened sexual stuff and all that and the no parents around it they're they're scary and the movies to me when i see the movies i they smell like summer camp to me i suddenly have flashbacks to this, that that mildewy smell of summer camp and you know in the woods and that that mossy smell they just feel like the they feel like the story they're telling around the campfire and it's completely by accident cuz we're not going to these aren't fellini and you know uh orson wells here but Horror is a more instinctual thing. So simple horror that is visceral sometimes feels very artful because we don't we don't go near those emotions a lot. Right. That was that was pretentious. Woo. No, I mean, but that's the thing is these these seemingly very simple things or cheesy things mm-hmm. they do tap into very primal things and very inform, informational things about just human nature yeah. and why we go to see these things. Uh, I, I I think. Friday the 13th, I think I knew it just existed. I don't even remember the first time I saw it. I remember watching Friday the 13th Part 2 for the first time. It was at a friend's house. Uh, but I, I think was at it, the time... Was it, a v- was it a VHS? Oh, yes. It was definitely a VHS. Was it a clamshell VHS or the plastic protector cover you had to squeeze and drop out the it bottom? It was probably the plastic protector cover. Or it may have even been the one where they don't even give you the, the actual box. You get the you know the video oh, the store clear. branded box. Yeah. You know. Please uh, be trying to rewind. Exactly. Uh, I remember being a little bored by it the first time I saw it because I'm sure at the time I was a teenager, uh, we had rented it expecting Hockey Mask Jason and we Uh, didn't get Hockey Mask Jason. But I think going back now and rewatching it, it's I mean, it's definitely one of the strongest, if not the strongest of the sequels. And part of it is and you have this thing with the Halloween franchise too. Nightmare on Elm Street is different because Freddy was always supernatural, but you don't have that burden of having to explain how Jason keeps coming back. Same with Michael Myers. You can kind of 
shave, shove off the fact that, okay, yeah, he got a coat hanger in the eye in the first one and he got shot, but he could, he could still be walking around this one too, with Jason, you have to explain away why he's, you know, an adult now and what, but, but you don't have to explain how he's coming back. And that's the sequel yeah. that the burdens, the burden that the sequels had to have. And the weird hill people thing, you know, if you look even in the narrative of it, if he was a kid who was developmentally disabled and drowned because of the inept- the ineptitude of adults, and then he sees his mother get murdered, he's going to stay in the woods. You know, he's right. He's he's that scared animal that goes and hides under the car and won't come out. So it makes sense. It makes sense. And there's once again, unlike Jason, or I'm, I'm unlike Michael. Or unlike Freddy, who are just evil, you kind of get Jason. It doesn't justify what he does, but he was abused, he's mentally challenged, his mother was murdered, and he was abandoned to live in the woods by himself. All he's going to know is when he sees this camp, this camp is going to be such bad memories for him. I actually, and a brief aside, I got to write the origin of Mrs. Voorhees in a comic book when DC Comics had the rights to Friday the 13th. I called the editor and said, I'm writing a two-parter. He said, oh, I said, no, I'm not pitching. I'm I'm writing this. <laughs> and it's it's the whole framework of Mrs. Voorhees. It opens with Annie getting in her car and that, that Jeep ride. Mrs. Voorhees is telling her her story. And I figured out why Jason doesn't like people having sex. It's not a moral thing. In my story... When his counselors are having sex, he goes in the woods and sees the female counselor bent over a fallen tree and the guy behind her, and they're moaning. And Jason thinks he's hurting her. Mm. So he goes over and starts hitting him, and the guy backhands him, and then that's why Jason runs to the lake. Now, that's not necessarily canon, but that also, trying to get into the head of this character, that's this goofy horror movie character, and find a kernel of what makes makes sense, because... Yeah, he's evil, and he becomes an he becomes the shark in Jaws by the end of this franchise. Right. But these first two movies, you could almost understand how he gets there. Once again, empathy and, and is not sympathy for the guy, but you're like, oh, Je- um, Jenny even says it at the dinner or then at the bar. She's like, what if he's this scared? I'm not going to use the '80s word that she shouldn't have used as a yes. child psychologist, but she says, what if she's this? He's this. She's he's this scared kid in the woods. Yeah. You know, and who saw his mother get murdered? What if that what if he's out there and scared and afraid of everything and this is how he protects himself? And you're like, "Oh, it's it's once again one of those accidental things in Friday the 13th that gives it more depth than I ever wanted." Because that one that one bit of dialogue makes you think in a way that you never think about when you're seeing, you know, Godzilla destroy Tokyo. You're not thinking about the people in the houses. But in that, it's just a, it's just enough humanization that it makes her feel smarter than the average final girl and it yeah. makes you think a little bit more about He's not just this tornado. There's there's thoughts going on in his head. Well, and it's a depth that Michael Myers never really got. They tried no. to add this thing of like, oh no, he wants to get his sister, but no. he, he he was really just kind of a boogeyman. With yeah, the Jason, more depth, the more depth they added to Michael, the less interesting he became. I don't exactly. care about. I don't care who his substitute teacher was in fifth grade. That's not relevant. <laughs> but with Jason, you understand that he's kind of running a pure instinct. Yeah, in a certain way, uh, and and I like that. I like that sh- that that shade of just like you know he he really even kind of misunderstands the world in a weird way and it's not that you condone what he does but you understand why he is doing what he does yeah. uh, in the same way that like uh, to a lesser degree but with Nightmare on Elm Street you understand Freddy Krueger's motivations you don't disagree I mean I don't agree with them but you understand why he does what he does and I think that makes him a more interesting villain uh, and you yes. don't get that a lot villains like Freddy are interesting because they did. A- the worst possible thing you could do and they get punished for it and they're mad at getting punished. Yeah. I, I, I love that level of self-delusion of true maniacs where they're like, yeah, I raped and murdered a hunt, bunch of kids at a daycare center. But did you have to burn me to death? Like, wait. <laughs> that was over the line. Wait, wait a minute. What? Yeah, it's that skewed morality yeah. that again, it, 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 it doesn't excuse anything, but it makes it a more interesting character. Oh, and absolutely. if you can make a killer in a movie like this an interesting character, then I think you're doing something right because because you're you're engaging people beyond just like oh there's somebody with a with a machete or a whatever a chainsaw hacking people to death. We're two college educated adults having a fairly intense, deep, <laughs> serious conversation about Friday the Thirteenth Part One and Part Two. Something about these movies worked. Do you remember not- the first time you saw the sequel? The first time you oh. saw Part Two. 
Yes, it was. Uh, it was. I had a sleepover. I, I, I and um, all my friends had to get permissions from from their parents for my mom and dad to take us. And it was a Friday night, and it was. I was so excited. I was so excited, and I, I actually didn't know a lot about the story of the second one because they thankfully stopped letting horror movie magazines say, here's the entire plot of the movie and right. stills to accompany it. So I knew some of the visuals and stuff, but, but oof, it was that, that one scares me a lot more than the Friday, than the, the original, because it's, it's, Oh, I, I don't know. Mrs. Voorhees is a person. Jason is, Jason's this, it's just the physical presence of him is, I think I could, I think I could fight the old woman. I think I could fight Mrs. Voorhees. Jason, I'm just like, okay, make it quick. <laughs> well, there's that moment where, and it, and it's kind of their version of the 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 boat scare at the end, where he mm. comes through that window, and I've always loved how that's staged because he just he just, la- I mean, just the power yeah. he just launches himself through that window to grant. I mean, it's just such a display of just like pure just will and force. Um, and when you see his face, it's misshapen, but it's not like the monster in the fun house or something. It's not ridiculous. That guy could exist. Once again, mm-hmm. when you see it, you know, and, and when he gets injured, the, the actor deals with the injures, injuries Jason gets physically. So there's like a slight limp or a slight favoring. So like you said, he's not this he's not this immortal engine of evil. He's this damaged monster who is wants revenge. And the, the idea that he might be injurable makes him scarier than if he's right. completely unstoppable, because I'm not going to be able to stop a tidal wave from drowning me. But I'm going to be able to hopefully cross a river on a rickety bridge. But the rickety bridge is a hell of a lot scarier because I might not make it. You know, it's you it's, can it's fall in. yeah, and and it's just it, and that scene too. I'm um, I'm such a nerd about these movies. That scene with him jumping through was really difficult for them to make. He's like on a box, and they had they, I think they only had like one window, one fake glass window, and just the whole staging of that scene was incredibly difficult, and the actor couldn't really see. It's it's and the other thing, once again, we see in this one, too, the first time when Ginny and Paul come back before the very the climax of the movie and Jason's there. You see a guy fight back against Jason. They're in a fist fight. They're actually wrestling. And just little scenes like that are good because they give the audience hope, whether it's right or not. You know, maybe it's delusion, but it makes the guy seem there, there seems like there might be an Achilles heel. And I think this may be one of the last times where you are legitimately kind of rooting for them to beat him. Yeah. I, I think the unique thing about Jason and with Freddy Krueger a little bit too, it, but that came about more about the cult of personality around Freddy. Mm-hmm. Jason doesn't necessarily have that kind of personality, but there came a point where the people that he was killing became so one dimensional and so stock that you're just waiting to see them die. You're yeah, waiting to see how is Jason going to kill them. This yeah. movie, I think you still are sort of rooting for these these people to 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 make it through somehow. Jenny is smart. When Jenny goes into that the cabin and finds the mom's head there and decides to put on the sweater and tuck her hair in, that's that's fourth dimensional chess right there. It I is. wouldn't have thought of that. I would have pissed myself and passed out. No, yeah. Mara and I were watching it, and she did oh. that. And Mara was like, "Good move." I'm like, "Yeah, that's actually yeah, really like, smart." It's like nice, and that's why I think this the sequel is held in the same regard as the first one because it improves upon the first one. It extends the story in a way that feels deeply satisfying. It was in the early '80s, so it wasn't a time of cynical. Let's put toys and action figures, and let's figure out how to monetize this. It just felt like it felt like if you were the kid, that, if you were my counselor, and told me Friday the Thirteenth. When I was a teenager and I was a counselor, I told Friday the 13th Part 2. It felt like storytelling in the best sort of tradition. And and once again, Ginny is one of the is the only the only final girl that we really remember from this franchise cuz poor Alice got, mm-hmm. gets killed. But Ginny is like Ginny and, and Tina from Part 7. I want to do one with I want the psychic girl to come back cuz that's awesome. So we there was a lot of talk, and, and I feature Siskel and Ebert on this mm-hmm. show a lot because they were, for me, my big entry into film criticism and honestly, a lot of films. I heard about a lot of films like Fargo and Pulp Fiction and you know, big films that were coming out as I was getting into film through their show because it was syndicated. Um, mm-hmm. and that was how a lot of word came through to me. So I have a very big soft spot in my heart for them and particularly for Roger Ebert. But, and one thing where I disagree with them, they were both consistently very um 
I, as I said earlier, clutching cl- pearl clutching about mm-hmm. these kinds of movies, Gene Siskel in particular, uh, and Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th part two, especially that they were detrimental to the youth of America, that they were misogynistic, that the violence was um, completely reprehensible. Uh, Gene Siskel spoiled the first movie in his review and encouraged people to, to write in, uh, you know, to, 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 the actors and, and, and say how bad the movie was. Um, do you remember this? You know, it's, it's sort of similar to the whole satanic panic with dungeons and dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember this atmosphere, this environment of people, adults, authority figures coming in and saying like, these movies are bad for you and they're going to well, ruin the youth of America. It was the Reagan era. So it was so jingoistic. Um, and it was, it was, yeah, pearl clutching is the perfect term for it. It was just like, you know, I love Cisco and Ebert. What I loved about Cisco and Ebert is they were great critics. They, they were critics in the Pauline Kale. I mean, Ebert won a goddamn Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. So it's not like the today where it's like, the movie's about this, and I thought it sucked. That's a book report. That ain't a movie review. <laughs> movie criticism is an art form. Criticism is, a, is a, an art form. And as a kid growing up in Ohio, I, was, I didn't have access to New York or L.A. for the movies. So Cisco and Ebert for me, Sunday nights at 9 o'clock on PBS, I would watch it. And that's where I saw the, that's where I went to see The Crying Game for the first time. That's where I went and saw Reservoir Dogs for the first time. And I didn't agree with them all the time, but that was fine. I think they were completely off base on this. The only thing I think they were more off base on was... Roger Ebert's review of Blue Velvet is completely insane. Um, it's actually on the Blu-ray because it's. I think he changed his mind, but his his review was like, you would think that the movie not only started World War II, but it killed the Lindbergh baby and assassinated JFK from his review. You're like, dude, cut the cut the caffeine out. Something's wrong here. Uh, no, um, I mean, but- he would get hung up on certain things. I remember uh, Kick-Ass. Mm-hmm. He was so hung up on Hit Girl. And the idea yeah. that you have a young girl, and, and I mean, he just railed against the movie. But it, he simply... loved Cat Taxi Driver. <laughs> exactly. But it's an example of loving a critic, but acknowledging that you can disagree with them. Yeah, but this yeah, overall that's... feeling that they're ruining the youth. I mean, yeah, I guess there were a lot of things that were ruining the youth back then. Well, the s- simpler times, mm-hmm. simpler times in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, every generation has that book burning, scary nonsense thing. Um, and I mean, they even had a, as me as an adult, I have real issues with movies like Hostel. I have mov- I have real issues with movies that that show violence as complete and sadism. If if I'm watching a movie and I feel like the director is getting an erection watching this person be skinned alive, that's not that's not that's not horror. That's not terror. That's sadism and that's 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 brutality. That's not interesting to me. And I can defend a movie like the Friday the Thirteenth series, the Freddy Krueger series, or even Halloween because it's ridiculous violence. It's all part of the show. It's not a, and they don't linger. You don't see the knife going in someone's eye super, super slow. When Jason chops the guy walking on his hands in half, walking down the hallway in Friday the Thirteenth Part Three D, it's ridiculous because one, that's impossible, and two, it's ridiculous. A boogeyman's chopping people up. I don't need the world. It's awful enough. If I'm going to see violence in movies, I need it to be two ways. The Grand Guignol, sort of, like I said, this, or like the Black Knight in Monty Python's Holy Grail, or it needs to actually really hurt. I think irresponsible violence is in like big action movies where you shoot 300 people and they're just props. There's no, so, you know, but that being said, I agreed with Cisco more often than I disagreed with him. And I like, I like disagreements. It, it fosters conversation. I don't want you to agree with me all the time. I'm not right all the time. I'm not right most of the time. So, <laughs> well, you know, I grew up when I was a teenager, essentially uh, 13 on kind of in the scream era in my teenage years, they were the meta horror. I was in the meta horror yeah. era, the meta horror era where the horror films that were being made, a lot of them were, were at least in the beginning were slasher films that were meta about being a slasher film, mm-hmm. uh, but then ultimately devolved into generic slasher films because yeah. you would lose the originality. And then from there, we went into torture porn, as I, it's been called, and I have to somewhat agree with it. It's ab- footage, that's absolutely all right. That's absolutely the right term for that. But I, I feel like, and, and it's something that I always, and you can see by the fact that there are documentaries. There's one called Crystal Lake Memories about mm-hmm. Friday the 13th that covers every movie. There's one called Never Sleep Again. Not just the fans, but the people that were in these films, these these this first wave of post Halloween, the Nightmare on Elm Streets, the the Friday the Thirteenth, 
there's almost a purity to it. Um, do you think that that is nostalgia from people who are just were part of an era, or do you think that there was actually just a a more of a freeing air around these things where it's just we're just here, we're doing something stupid, and if people like it, they like it. It, it seems like mo- the, move, the movies now take themselves a little too seriously, in my opinion. Well, a lot of well, them. Al- well, also now if it's an if it's an existing IP, it's owned by a mega corporation that wants to figure out the three thousand ways they can make it into different things. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know. I don't. We, we don't want to overstate the greatness of these films as pieces of celluloid, but you know, there's there's a, a simplicity to them. You know, and 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 back then, when when these movies came out in the '80s, it wasn't like today when people go to the movies every week. Movies were a special thing. You know, it was like, oh, I had to save my allowance and go to a movie, and you know, oh, it was going out. It wasn't. We didn't have video stores. We didn't have cable. So this was a group. This was a. This was like. This was like going to the haunted house in your neighborhood on Halloween. This was a way for a bunch of people to get together, sit in a nice cool room in the middle of a hot day and get the bejesus scared out of them and then walk home and laugh about it. There was, it's, it's why, it's why the, the state of movie theaters right now, I hope we, I hope we figure it out and I hope we get a vaccine soon because movie theaters, they will never disappear because it's an important, it's an important thing we have to. And this, I think actually, even though right now it's making movie theaters suffer immeasurably, when this is over, every single one of us is going to want to be in a movie theater and be around people. I mean, I cried the other day watching a story about a party where people were like hugging. And I'm like, why am I crying? Oh, because people are allowed to touch and be, and be close to each other. So I think we're going to go back there. But that's an important, that's an important part of, of who we are as a species. We need those shared group experiences. And what are some of the most primal ones? Comedy and horror. They're instantaneous. And, you know, these movies, when you go to a Friday the 13th convention, you don't see people, you don't see proud boys. You see a bunch of nerds and a bunch of girls who are wearing makeup and, and having fun and laughing about it and enjoying it. It's, 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 a, it's, a, un, it's, a, it's a unifying sort of scare. There's nothing about this that feels sadistic. Best, worst case scenario, they're ridiculous movies. And yeah. we need more. And we're living in ridiculous times. I give me more ridiculousness in the form of Friday the Thirteenth than in the way the world is run. So, I agree with that. I mean, I was saying this on another show yesterday. Uh, a horror movie or a movie like Avengers Endgame, uh, if you put if you throw a group of people into the theater, it's it plays the same in California as it does in Tennessee or West and Virginia. It- or Bangladesh. Or Bangladesh. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It is that unifying thing of knowing that you're sharing this experience. And I think I agree. That's what people are going to want to get back to. And I hope we're able to get back to it soon. Well, Mark- even remember. Oh, sorry. Uh, but even remember when a, a bunch of us went and saw The Quiet Place, which I'm not a huge fan of that film. I don't think it's narratively sound. Mm-hmm. But the entire audience, no one checked their phone for 92 minutes. The entire audience was quiet. You can't do that at home. No. You can't. It's 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 tough. It, it, you just can't replicate that atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, Mark, we we got the first two movies out of the way, but this the show is called All My Movies, and okay. I got I I, brought, I have the box set, so I have several more Friday the Thirteenth movies that we are going to have to get to eventually. So whether that's in three I would months love or three to years, back. we will talk I about would, those. I think I would love to be your Friday the Thirteenth consultant. I would love it. I could talk about all the franchises. They're they're the. They're like, like I said, they, they bring me a lot of joy because they make me feel like I'm having Jiffy Pop popcorn to sleep over. And, you know, it's there. And once again, you know, that's the thing I think I love the most about the concept you have for the show, because we can like movies that are great movies. We can like movies that are bad movies. That means. But we have to contextualize why we like the movies. It's more than sometimes it transcends the movie. And sometimes there are movies that are patently awful that are deeply meaningful to us because of the solace they gave us, or the joy they gave us, or who we saw them with. And talking about all the things that come from a love of movies, I think, is really important now, because now everyone has a sense of appreciation of what we have and what we don't have. And I just think this is a really super smart idea. I can't wait to watch all of them, and I would love to come back, because you're such a smart guy and such a great guy to talk about movies with. I get so I get so invigorated about talking about movies is you. I wish I felt this way about the gym because then I would be in much better shape than I am. (laughs) 
You and me both, man. Well, <laughs> just stand by. Like I said, this show is going to take a long time to get through everything, but uh, you are, you're on the list for when the, oh, the number comes up for the next awesome. one. Awesome. Mark, thanks for sharing your love of Friday the 13th with me today. Always great to see you, my friend. Take care of yourself. I want to thank Mark for having such a great discussion. And it's what I love about the show, and I say it every week, is we're not just talking about the movies and how they're made. We're talking about why we love them and the impact that we've had on them. And I love that for different generations, these movies mean different things. Mark remembers seeing them in theaters, and that is such a distinct memory for him. I remember renting them and watching them at friends' houses late at night when we're doing sleepovers and stuff like that. It's a different experience, but the movies affect us in the same ways, and that's what I love about different generations, even if we're only separated by a few years like Mark and I are, experiencing the same movie differently. It's so much fun to compare those stories, and I loved talking to Mark about the Friday the 13th. First two films, we're going to talk about the next ones when their number comes up. Maybe the next time we hit an actual Friday the 13th on the calendar. Now, I do want to address, uh, because this is all my movies, uh, how I came to own these films, which is that they were cheap. There was an eight-movie collection for Friday the 13th called The Ultimate Collection that was on sale for about 20 bucks. I bought them, so it's got the first eight movies going all the way up to Jason Takes Manhattan, which means that those eight movies are all on the list, even though we've just done the first two. We've got six more of these other Friday the 13th films uh, to, do, to go. I also have the remake, and who knows? Maybe I'll complete the set. We'll get Jason Goes to Hell. We'll get Jason X. I mean, that would be pretty interesting to talk about. I usually have the disc here in front of me. I I don't have it in front of me today, uh, but uh, you know, they're HD transfers of the movies on Blu-ray. Now, the new set that just came out, they did all new 4K transfers, so uh, my collection, which was already uh, you know on sale, uh, just became completely outdated. However, this set does have some pretty good features on them, commentaries, some documentaries and making ofs, but if you are a Friday the 13th fan, again, I cannot recommend enough the documentary Crystal Lake Memories, over six hours of Friday the 13th, its history from the people that made it, wrote it, created it, directed it, starred in it, going all the way from the beginning to the end of the franchise. So another big recommendation for that. I love great documentaries about the movies. Crystal Lake Memories is one of those documentaries. So that wraps up our discussion of Friday the 13th, the first two films in the franchise. Thank you so much to everyone who is listening to the podcast or watching us here on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. Spread the word, like, rate, subscribe, share. We're still building the show. I want to thank everybody at SEN, at Skybound. I want to thank Christian Harloff, my producer, Ian Start. Frank, my editor, uh, everybody who helped put this episode together. And again, as you can see, we're doing some transitional stuff here with the background. The next episode, we're going to be in a very exciting new setting, uh, a lot of new stuff to look at. And again, it's not going to look like Liam Neeson has to come rescue me from wherever I'm doing the show. So thank you for going through this transition with me uh, as we go to a new space. And for now, it's time to go back on the show. See you next time.